African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, let's start off our program today. Human Rights Month is commemorated in March to remind South Africans about the sacrifices that accompanied the struggle for the attainment of democracy in South Africa. This year's Human Rights Day is commemorated under the theme The Year of Unity, Socioeconomic Renewal, and Nation Building. Sometimes when I hear these uh, themes, I just uh, get nauseated because it's almost like a uh, just a passing marketing theme. But on the 21st of March 1960, the community of Sharpville and Langer Townships embarked on a protest march to protest against past laws. The apartheid police shot and killed 69 of the protesters at Sharpville. Many of them shot while fleeing. Many other people were killed in other parts of the country. The tragedy came to be known as the Sharpville Massacre and exposed the apartheid government's uh, deliberate violation of human rights to the world. Where are we uh, many years later in our democracy? What does human rights mean today? And can we be proud of our human rights record as a country? Helping us on this conversation is Wayne Ngube, who is the National Director at the Lawyers for Human Rights. And also we have Aleph Muhlenberg, who is a CEO of uh, Youth Development NPO Africa Tikkun. Thank you both for giving us your time. Wayne, how are you? How are you this morning? No, I'm great. Thank you for giving us your holiday. Not a problem. <laughs> for sure. Um, let's look at uh, 61 years down the line since Sharpville massacre. Um, we can be reminiscent of the changes in our democracy. Definitely, there has been some changes. But uh, we have so many inequalities, especially when it comes to issues around uh, the socioeconomic environment. And also just uh, um, the policing structures of the country is another question that we can still question in this particular day. Yes, definitely. And I think just the past few weeks have shown uh, the kind of lack of progress in both as we saw with uh, the announcement of the budget, which had significant cuts, which will uh, disproportionately affect uh, poor and marginalized communities. And we saw that with the students protesting to allow for educational inclusion, which opens up economic inclusion. And we saw the kind of police brutality that kind of followed uh, those protests, leading to the one uh, civilian... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one civilian who died. Absolutely, and and, and yeah. that was not really a shocker, um, because we'd seen that before. Um, in lockdown, we had police brutality of the same kind of nature. Um, there was another man who was allegedly killed by a member of the um, defense force in Alexandra. So we are seeing a spiraling effect of, of these uh, incidents, Wayne. Yes, definitely. And uh, I mean, it's it's uh, there were a lot of people who were killed by police and the army during the lockdown. The high-profile one, which everyone saw, was Collins Causa, but he was just one of many that we tracked. And it's not just this year with lockdown. We've seen it with Marikana. We see it every other day with the way in which police engage 
protesting uh, communities. And I think that's really the issue here in that those kind of lessons from Sharpeville haven't really translated into the way in which we've reformed our public policing and specifically our public policing for uh, essentially uh, people of color in uh, less privileged communities. And so even though we've had these great strides in terms of having a constitution that uh, is renowned across the world, having these institutions, the judiciary, all these Bill of Rights, uh, we're still a long way towards kind of achieving a state which is reactive and kind of lives up to the Bill of Rights and to the redress that's meant to come from that. Mm. Aleph, let me bring you into this conversation. I mean, uh, the socioeconomic environment is one that is appalling, especially at this particular time in COVID-19. I was surprised at how we had such a hard lockdown when we kind of initiated our response to COVID-19. We didn't know much about the pandemic, so our government keeps saying that uh, there were some benefits to that particular hard lockdown. But it seems like the long-term implications of trying to duplicate uh, a first world country response like China is much more detrimental for a country like South Africa. Um, uh, yes, I think you're quite right. Mm, go ahead, Alif. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. <laughs> um, I think you're right. I think what, what we need to take into account is that South Africa is either the most unequal from an economic and socioeconomic uh, perspective or one of the most unequal countries in the entire world. So a response obviously needs to take that, needs to take that in, in account. Our middle class and upper class um, will still have food on the plate, for, as an example, when it comes to a, a hard lockdown. Well, that's often not the case for, for the, the communities that the other, um, the, I think Dane was, was speaking about, and, mm. and those are the communities that we work in, like Alexandra, like Deep Sloot, like Orange Farm, um, and those are the communities that then offer, often immediately suffer when, when a lockdown of that nature came into 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 place so that's that's what we're dealing with in a, on a daily basis and it, it includes access to regular to quality education to healthcare, mm-hmm. but also access to basic uh, living conditions like a, a roof over your head that is um, solid and um, access to, to nutritious food and you know we, we, someone would say you know ben why are you asking a question about something that happened months months ago but it's because we ask these questions because you can see just how the implications are now unfolding as time keeps um, going, um, Elif. I mean, in communities, what have you seen as we've tried to open up the economy? Um, I've seen very difficult um, environments for people where a lot of people have lost just basic jobs, you know, not uh, complex jobs. So um, just jobs at a retail store. Someone was working as a guard. Someone was working as a cleaner. Someone was working as a sweeper somewhere. You know, it's just those kind of jobs that people have lost. And um, it's hard getting back on your feet when you kind of live in that kind of environment. 100%, 100%, Benjamin. I think the, the biggest thing for, uh, for us is, is twofold. Um, one is there are still consequences that are going to play out in the next um, even years to come. Um, and those often relate to, to stunting of children, um, to, to lack of access to education, to lack of access to nutrition. Um, but, but some of the, the more immediate things is loss of jobs. And because of the, the, 
historic background and the, the lack of um, education for a lot of people that we deal with, um, it's, not the, it's not easy to, to enter the economy again in, in a sustainable way. And where the economy is going with the fourth industrial revolution and everything, what we place a lot of emphasis on is reskilling people. So reskilling people who've lost their job into basic IT skills mm-hmm. or, or basic skills that would that would uh, meet the demand in the in the current economy, um, instead of trying to get them into a similar job they were in before, because that's really really tricky. Um, and 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 on that one, that's the one hand. The second hand, on the other hand, we're trying to ensure that people then enter the economy through something like an agripreneurship program, an entrepreneurial program in the mm-hmm. agricultural space, or just an entrepreneurial program in its in its own right. We don't per se expect the next Bill Gates or the next uh, Steve Jobs to come out of that, but yeah. we do want to look at how do we make people business owners and and generate an income for themselves and ensure that there is local economic growth in their community. So it's, it's absolutely. Something we see in our communities, and, and something that we need to urgently respond to. And how does this socio-economic environment link to human rights? Because um, as much as we're talking about it, someone is saying, "Hey, this is human rights day. You're moving away from your actual topic." But all these things are related because if your socioeconomic status is um, not in a good um, state, then you you almost lose a lot of rights that you don't have access to um, just because of how our infrastructure and our economies are um, uh, 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 placed in, in our lives. 100%. I think the, the, big, the biggest rights that we're speaking about, and I'm not a human rights lawyer, so... They would have a lot more knowledge about that. But the biggest right that we speak about here is to have a safe roof over your head, to have access to a daily meal, um, but also the right to make choices, to the, the right to choose where you live, the right to um, choose what kind of job um, you, you want to pursue, what you dream to, to establish the dreams that you have for yourself and for your children. And those are things that often are taken away from people due to poverty and unemployment and inequality. And those socioeconomic conditions perpetuates the, the the in my opinion perpetuates both um, um, a, a very polarized society but also a very unequal society and racialized and that is something we really urgently need to address as a country let's bring you in Wayne what are your thoughts around that the fact that um, when it comes to issues of uh, you know poverty and uh, that kind of equality um, it actually quenches a lot of these other rights that uh, people uh, are supposed to enjoy in, in this country with this amazing constitution yes uh, that's uh, completely true and I, I think what we've seen is the way in which uh, basic uh, Bill of Rights, like your right to equality, access to justice, uh, even fair labor rights, and these are all basic human rights, there's a, a clear intersect between that and your economic status and your class status. And uh, so the, the idea that they're in some way uh, dislinked is obviously wrong. Uh, your socioeconomic status has a great deal to do with how the state and, uh, you know, like uh, society interacts, uh, intersects with your your basic human rights, your right to life, your right to to equality, uh, access to institutions that kind of protect your human rights. Uh, and so it is necessary that uh, we deal quite drastically with the larger inequality gap within the country. 
uh, and I think that will uh, help us build more sustainable economies as well. Let me take a quick break. I will look at some of these other factors uh, that are difficult to kind of hold on to and celebrate days like this on Human Rights Day. When I was driving out, there's little much that's going to happen today than celebrating um, uh, these topics that we're speaking about because little has been achieved in light of that because we've seen even a deepening unemployment due to COVID-19 since last year. I mean, when we look back into the um, second quarter of 2020, we shared about 2.2 million jobs, and that was with an economy that was not even doing well. So to help us with this human rights uh, a day commemoration, we're not really commemorating month, but looking at the real facts of what is really challenging for South Africa when it comes to human rights. We're joined by Wayne Nube from the Lawyers for Human Rights. We also have Aleph Muhlenberg, who is uh, from NPO Africa uh, Tikkun. We will speak to them after this break and continue this conversation. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. 21 minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. Uh, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa on Human Rights Day. Uh, the theme this year is the year of unity, socioeconomic renewal and nation building. They sound like uh, uh, very much of a phrase that is a uh, uh, public uh, stunt of sorts because when you look at the environment in South Africa, it is very bleak at this particular moment. Helping us on Human Rights Day to look at uh, uh, the status of human rights in South Africa 60 years after the Sharpeville massacre. We have Aleph Muhlenberg who is uh, from Africa Tikkun, who is the CEO of the youth uh, development of that NPO. And we have Wayne Nube who is a national director at the Lawyers for Human Rights. Um, when we were talking about just human rights record in, in South Africa and I started off uh, just looking at the recent uh, red flags that we've been seeing when it comes to human rights violations in the country. What other things seem to be a challenge when it comes to human rights? Uh, so I, I think the, the biggest problem still is access to justice for a lot of uh, communities. Uh, because a lot of these rights, right, they end up being paper rights unless they're institutions or uh, civil society organizations that are reaching out to those communities that are able to help them access dispute resolution mechanisms or that are able to just uh, do a lot of legal empowerment. 
And uh, what what happens is a lot of communities are just, particularly in rural areas, uh, just do not have access to a lot of these institutions that are able to realize rights, protect those rights, and uh, provide uh, basic services. Uh, so as an example, if you see the recent cuts in the budget, that will have a massive uh, effect uh, towards uh, CCMA courts, which are meant to basically protect... Yeah, I've noticed that, yes, rights. sure. Uh, we have a lot of clients who are now, and advice officers who are talking about the clients now not being able to basically send their matters uh, for dispute resolution or that now have to access uh, uh, different buildings like internet cafes and uh, and lodge their their claims electronically and that just pushes makes puts us barriers towards access to justice uh, a lot of communities just generally don't even know the different mechanisms that are available to them and aren't able to access them and so access to justice is one of the biggest areas uh, the, then when we look at our like socioeconomic rights you know like the realizing rights as we call them uh, again, you look at the budget and the budget cuts that will have a tremendous effect on how the state is going to actually realize a lot of these obligations that they're still quite far behind on. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not that we want to take a pessimistic look. Obviously, we're all just looking at the gaps and seeing how where, how far we kind of need to go. Uh, but uh, things have really taken a massive step back since uh, kind of the pandemic and the lockdown. Yeah, you know, why is that the case? Is that based on the prioritization of government funding or the government purse? Uh, so it's it's a bit of both. So definitely when you look at the recent budget, there, there's a clear lack of prioritization on institutions that help uh, specific communities. and uh, and But that's not necessarily the case and the legacy over like the last 20, 25 years. Uh, I think a big problem has been just uh, the proper running and understanding of certain government institutions to kind of understand what their constitutional obligations are, and also not great relations between different state organs that are meant to work hand-in-hand, cooperating towards uh, achieving uh, and serving basic economies. And we see that a lot with mining communities, where particularly at the end of mining cycles, where municipalities do not have the resources, are not given the resources to to kind of take over services for these communities where mine operations used to take place, and there isn't enough uh, like uh, cooperation between them and uh, CSOs like ESCOM or, or water service providers, and uh, also that stuff is not allocated well within the budget for seeing what communities like that would need when their situation changes. So it's a, it's a complex answer, and it's not like there's one monolith problem that uh, exists in all states' organs. I think a lot of them do try and meet the constitutional obligations. Uh, the government person priorities definitely is one of the big reasons why they're not able to do it. Elif, mm. let me bring you into this conversation back into it because one would think that um, you know the government in this country is um, strained with uh, little to actually do and intervene in social causes and 
and also their purse is limited and what uh, Wayne is highlighting there in terms of a shift of priorities and one of those has been uh, payment of social grants we know there's uh, 350 uh, social relief of distress grants of around 350 per month which is um, given to those who um, are unemployed in, in this time of COVID-19 was that a rational decision to have been made? Do you think grants such as that actually help the the, the poor? Um, short term, yes. Long term, no. Um, but what we're actually trying to achieve is quite the opposite. We're trying to get um, more and more South Africans away from social grants into a um, working population. Um, yeah. Short term, I think the situation was dire enough for people to need um um, in a, some sort of a, an income through a stipend or a social grant. But long-term, that's definitely not the solution. Um, long-term, the solution would be to look at how do we holistically develop human beings in order so that they can generate their own income and that they won't be reliant on government grants, but they can actually contribute towards the, the government um, um, income via taxes. So that's really what we're trying to achieve is to holistically develop people from, from a very young age all the way until they they are in the marketplace, either via employment or self-employment. And that, that is a process that is not a quick fix, unfortunately. That's a process that needs both public and private sector um, holistically working together. And um, I think that, that that is where the biggest challenge is at the moment. It's, yes, it's a short-term solution, but long-term, that's definitely another solution I think we should adopt. And in terms of investments in that kind of skill development space, are we getting enough emphasis from government and even the private sector to sharpen ourselves in, in that light? Because with many challenges, we know that our economy is not going to be the same economy that we had before COVID-19, that definitely we have to upskill ourselves. Uh, we need to think in very multilateral ways. Um I think there can always be done more be done, but I think particularly corporates are giving quite a bit of their their um, income towards skills development initiatives. Um, so there's definitely something that's been done. Their government has started Yes for Youth, which um, is a work experience program and um, designed to give young people um, experience. And we work quite closely with them, which is. Again, an initiative that, that helps from a BE perspective, but also ensures that people have, have a, a work experience, which is often a problem for young people in order to find jobs. Um, recently, the Presidential Youth Service has started. So there are enough initiatives out there. Um, it now is, is mainly around how do you link what government is doing to what private sector is doing? Um, how do you work not in silos, but collaboratively with civil society, with public and private. And I think those collaborations really need to happen in order to make a significant impact when it comes to youth unemployment. And skills development is definitely a big part of that. Um, but but I think that can not work in isolation. If you upskill someone where there's no jobs, uh, whether that is in the public or the private sector, um, it's a useless exercise. So we really have to work together. Um, there are some moves um, towards that. Um, one is the public-private growth initiative that recently started and piloted in the Waterberg region now, um, which is exciting. Uh, but again, it, it depends on how that's implemented. And that's often where the problem lies, isn't it? We have really good ideas and we have really good um, plans and strategic plans, but implementation is not always um, followed through. 
So that that for me is where where, where we are very passionate about. We just have to implement. And um, if it only stays with a piece of paper and doesn't get implemented, that really frustrates um, us, mm-hmm. and particularly also in the communities we are in. So we're excited with some of the initiatives that are happening around those lines, both from public and private. And um, it gives it gives us hope, um, and, and particularly in a, in a time where. And the situation seems very bleak. That hope is what what um, gets us out of bed every day. Mm. You know, community engagement is also another element where, when we need to comb out some of these inequalities, we need to do th- uh, that kind of intensive work uh, of uh, actually untying the knots that we find uh, within our communities when it comes to these inequalities that are being cemented year in and year out in our new uh, democracy. And we know with COVID-19, there's been the big challenge of the fact that we all in our homes and those who have the affordability to do so are only stuck in Zoom meetings because they have access to Wi-Fi. Uh, but how do we actually re-establish also that human engagement and community uh, interaction uh, in this time where we're trying to get back into uh, community work? We'll speak about that because that community work is so central when you think about human rights. If you're just joining us now, we're speaking to Aleph Muhlenberg, who's the CEO of Youth uh, Development within the Africa Tikkun uh, Center. And also we have Wayne who is the National Director at the Lawyers for Human Rights. Uh, We'll look at these themes as we wrap up our conversation after this break. Africa, South Africa's external service into sub-Saharan Africa. We're broadcasting from the SABC headquarters, rather, in uh, Auckland Park. Uh, thank you for joining me, Benjamin Mushatama, right here on DSTV Channel 802 on our audio bouquet. And if you are streaming us on our website, you're listening to us on www.channelafrica.co.za. This is African Dialogue, where we contextualize the issues on the African continent. Today, we're zooming into South Africa's Human Rights Day, uh, which is commemorated today in the country. It's actually a holiday. It's quiet outside. I was traveling to the office. It was pretty chilled. A little bit late, I'm sure people will be going out and celebrating their day with family and friends. But the day is so significant and very sad indeed because it it marks uh, uh, the day when uh, the apartheid police shot and killed 69 of the protesters at Sharpville. Many of them shot while fleeing. Today we're joined by Wayne Nube from Lawyers for Human Rights and Aleph Muhlenberg from Africa Tikkun. 
Wayne, let's look at this element of uh, restricted movements and the fact that even in our courts, you know, we couldn't really have access to them uh, during the, the, the lockdown season. And I'm sure even the work that you do as lawyers for human rights, sometimes you need to get yourself entrenched within uh, the communities to understand what's going on when it comes to matters of human rights and their concerns. Um, how do we get this community engagement back and uh, strengthen that? Because that's one of those things that have been weakened uh, during this trying time of COVID-19. Uh, yes. Uh, so that's really one of the problems during uh, COVID was uh, the restrictions and gatherings and movement. And what we've seen in a lot of our, the communities that we actually engage in, there's this misnomer that a lot of these communities are not uh, necessarily structured and don't have their own organizations. Normally they're well structured they know what their needs are and they have systems where they try and engage with states, with the municipality, with civil society, with businesses that uh, intersect them. But uh, their, their concerns are normally not taken seriously and that's why we see so many protests. And I think well, what needs to happen is uh, a, a lot of the public engagement platforms that are already in our law mm-hmm. have to be uh, taken seriously a lot more and also the way in which the state and specifically the police then engage with protesting communities has to happen within the ambit of the law as well. Uh, I think the kind of lockdown restrictions uh, actually did not deter a lot of communities and they've still kind of gathered, they've still met, they've still tried to set out what their priorities are uh, despite the restrictions. Uh, the restrictions towards access to courts uh, have been significant, although I think that's a topically uh, a different issue when mm-hmm. we now come to access to justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what government needs to do a lot more of is uh, is try and take the, these community engagement platforms seriously, whether it is the Department of Mineral Resources when they're engaging with affected communities, uh, mining communities. I, I think one of the terrible things we saw with this current administration was uh, as soon as uh, they kind of came into power, the current president came into power, there was a case regarding the mining charter and a lot of mining uh, communities, affected communities, were part of this matter, which we were meant to set out how those engagements happened and how mining priorities were set out. And the state basically asked that the matter be dismissed and then went ahead and met mining companies only and not mining affected communities who have very clear structures and were actually part of litigation. And so I think really it is a political will issue where the current administration is signaling that their priorities lie with bigger, more formalized businesses and are not really as concerned in engaging and listening to the concerns of uh, uh, structured community uh, circles. And that's one of the things that we're trying to work towards. And we then end up playing that intermediary as lawyers, which really shouldn't be the case. Your thoughts, um, Alifa, on on this issue of community engagement? Because that does kind of align with um, action and human rights uh, causes being, um, um, uh, you know, facilitated. I think community engagement is critical. Um, we, we were lucky to, to a large extent as an organization that we were able to pivot during the first wave towards 
um, food security um, and, and the part of the rollout of food solidarity fund. So we've been able to stay in touch with, with our communities quite closely and also hear their concerns when it comes to COVID, when it comes to job losses. And that's obviously the big thing. But interestingly enough, one of the other things that really came out is that communities feel that they don't have access to information as much as they would like, particularly when it comes to how to access supply chains of like a retailer in their community or stuff like that when they have a small business. So we're actually in the process of setting up two information centers in Soweto and Deep Slot, one in um, Soweto in a big mall there and Deep Slot uh, close, close to a mall. Um, and the purpose of that is to really engage with community, one on what their needs are, but also to um, give them information about what is actually available in their community and how can they access some of the opportunities that are there. Because often, often um, a lot of community members that are migrating to, to those communities um, don't have that information yet. So on the one hand, it's definitely hearing the community. On the other hand, it's also providing them with information that's relevant to their concerns. And um, that, that is really mm-hmm. something that we're passionate about and we're currently doing. Um, but it's something that can be done a lot more, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's definitely part of what I think makes, makes Human Rights Day Human Rights Day. And mm-hmm. what, what going forward, we need to do a lot more of. Yeah. Alif, let's wrap up the conversation. I mean, uh, both you and Wayne work from probably a microscopic sense in, 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 in trying to deal with issues that are related uh, to human rights. Um, you know, when you sit at home and you're trying to figure out a way forward, because this is a huge task that sometimes you embark upon, what, how do you see us covering a, a better way to deal with some of these challenges? Um. I, th- I think almost we have to look at what what is the South African or the South Africa we want? What is the South African we want? And how do we collectively work towards that? And um, and and then get hearing with government. And I think what Dane is uh, what Wayne is doing um, is really important with regards to that from a from a legal perspective and what we are trying to do from a socioeconomic perspective. I think is equally important. Um, but the moment all sectors are still working in isolation. I, in my opinion, very little is going to be achieved. So the moment public, private, and civil society start working together more in order to achieve this holistically, because there's benefit in it for, for, for government too. The, the less people are on social grounds, the less they have to pay for it, the more um, budget is available for other causes. So for, for us, um, it, it needs to be a collaborative approach. We've been working on it. Um, as an organization, we've set a target to reach a million people in 2026. Um, so we, we are aiming to scale our entire methodology further throughout the country. And I think those, those kind of bold statements are required by civil society and, and um, in collaboration with public and private mm. <clears throat> Sorry. in order to, to achieve those goals. And, and I think that's quite exciting. But on the other hand, it, it is on the, on the background of a very bleak current situation. Mm-hmm. When what were your your thoughts on that? I don't think it is a coincidence. I'm speaking to young people who are engaged in these kind of issues, and I think what Elif was saying is a very much important point to the fact that we should start redefining the kind of country we want to see for ourselves. Yeah, no, yes, definitely, and I agree with a lot of what he's saying, and that really everything starts with the vision of what you're trying to achieve and a consensus around that. And then, like, the more we have that consensus, the more the easier it is to then collaborate with all different parts of society, whether it's your business sector, whether it's the government, 
all levels of government and civil society and the affected communities. I think from a civil society point of view over the last few years, we have been trying to do a lot more collaboration uh, and using uh, the the Constitution as a basic guide to what that vision is meant to be. Uh, but uh, what's also necessary is we live in a democracy, and our, our democracy has to have uh, accountability, and our accountability institutions have to be effective and have to be accessible. Uh, so, for instance, uh, this budget really is one very like immediate litmus test mm-hmm. where we see a budget which appears to completely disalign from uh, the kind of vision and the aims mm-hmm. that uh, are set out in the Constitution towards redress, towards uh, kind of uplifting your, your most marginalized communities first. And, it's, and part of those democratic accountability methods also include uh, your elections, and uh, I think it will be important, and uh, the right to protest, and I think it will be important that uh, government is responsive to the kind of archive of people as we move forward, given this budget, and they also start to uh, show very clear plans that they're still committed towards their constitutional obligations, uh, despite the budget that has been put forward now. Yeah, it's definitely a, w- a long way to go. Just read a story today where um, a family of a man from Bumalang was shot dead by soldiers uh, suing the Department of Defense uh, as they are blaming one of the soldiers for killing one of their family members during the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. So, hey, still a long way to go, especially it's sad when we see these things after we've built a new kind of constitutional framework that seems to be even a, a challenge uh, for the current administration. But but thank you both, Wayne. Thank you, Aleph, for giving us your time. Thank you, thank you very much. Have a great day. Fantastic. Thank you, mate. You too.